I'm educational justice coach, Lindsay Lyons. And here on the Time for Teachership podcast, we learn how to inspire educational innovation for racial and gender justice, design curricula grounded in student voice, and build capacity for shared leadership. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach. I'm striving to live a life full of learning, running, baking, traveling, and parenting because we can be rockstar educators and be full human beings. If you're a principal, assistant superintendent, curriculum director, instructional coach, or teacher who enjoys nerding out about co-created curriculum with students, I made this show for you. Here we go. Welcome to episode 152 of the Time for Teachership podcast. Today, we're talking about creating a culture of learning for justice. So in this episode, we're really exploring a mindset shift. And this is for when you feel like you just can't move forward because maybe you don't have all of the answers. If you are feeling stuck, have a sense of imposter syndrome, or you're fearful of making a misstep because you, of course, don't know everything there is to know, this episode will give you an action plan. So not just the mindset shift, but an action plan as well for addressing those challenges. Here we go. All right, so let's talk about creating a culture of learning for justice. So first of all, there's a lot of research on the value of and the organization of learning communities. So you may call a learning community a PLC or professional learning community. You might talk about communities of practice. You might have these already set up in your school in different ways. There's a lot of legitimacy to them. Uh, Typically, they pursue a common goal. They include kind of a either distributed, quote unquote, leadership approach, or what I like to call a shared leadership approach, which typically is more inclusive, primarily more inclusive of students, ongoing data collection and analysis, and also really an emphasis on learning and partnership with one another, both from your failures and your successes, right? So there's this just culture of learning in these communities kind of inherent in them. Now, John Hattie's work is another piece that I often reference the number one largest impact on student learning from his research of over 250 influential factors is collective teacher efficacy or CTE for short. We know that this idea of CTE or collective teacher efficacy is highly impactful for student learning more than anything else. And so this idea of being able to figure it out as a team, as a collective, as a community, knowing that we will do right by our students, we will achieve our goal because we are a collective who learn from one another and we can do this together. That's what I would like to bring, not just to those staff level committees, but beyond teacher teams, beyond those school leadership teams, beyond all the things that already have the PLCs set up. We also bring them to spaces that are majority student spaces. This could be classrooms. This could be student groups that are working on a project within the classroom. This could be student groups that exist in extracurricular or after-school activities, uh, sports teams, you know, whatever space that it's primarily students numerically who make up the, the group itself. Now, I also want to caveat here that I often talk about shared leadership and the structures of shared leadership, which of course we will touch on in today's episode. Typically, those to do right by students, to really shift the dynamics towards justice and bring in historically marginalized groups, which are typically students, they're not usually at that level of leadership, we actually do want to have an equal number, if not a slight majority number of students in student adults mixed groups. Just because if we have a token student or we have fewer students, because of that historical imbalance of power, the students are often feeling like they're silenced and they're not speaking up and they don't feel like they 
um, are, are truly on equal footing or in true partnership with the adults. So with that caveat, I will say, let's try to think now about what this looks like. Like, how do we create this culture of learning in pursuit of justice in our spaces, in our communities? So I think the first step is recognizing as the leader that you literally cannot do this alone. So the answers to adaptive challenges, which are the ones we usually struggle with, right? I've talked a lot about adaptive challenges on the podcast before. Feel free to go listen to a prior episode if this is your first episode, but adaptive challenges are the ones we struggle with the longest. We have been trying for years, for decades to solve this problem, to address this problem, and we're not getting anywhere, right? Then it's probably adaptive. It's connected to the hearts and minds, the beliefs, the longstanding values that we hold and are clashing around. Technical challenges are, okay, we're going to implement this new curriculum. I, you know, here we go. You're going to study, you're going to go to three PD days and study this math curriculum. And for the most part, you're going to be good. Now there might be adaptive challenges in a curriculum implementation, but technical challenges are most likely fixed by like a quick fix. You know, the answer, you just have to do it and move forward. Adaptive challenges are often cultural in nature. There is a cultural shift that needs to be made. And what adaptive leadership scholars say is that you, as one individual person, cannot solve it. By nature, these adaptive challenges must be solved in community, in partnership with other folks in your space. So you literally can't do it alone, right? If you're listening to something about leading through change or solving a longstanding problem, it's adaptive in nature. You can't do it alone. Move on to step two. So what is step two? Step two is form power sharing structures and processes. I've talked a lot about this at the school level, so I'll review that a little bit. But then I also want to talk about this at the class level. So teachers in partnership with students, and then also at the peer group level. Now, this could be teacher teams. I think we often have a lot of processes for these. So feel free if that's aligned to your role to tune into that piece. If it's not, and you're more thinking about supporting teachers and in their instructional spaces at the classroom level, you might be thinking of peer groups like students, or perhaps your role, or you're in a supportive role for a person who's in a role that supports student groups holistically throughout the school, then definitely kind of put on that hat. So let's first talk about the school level. We want to bring students and teachers together to lead uh, in, in the form of school committees. So this might be a literal school leadership team, but it could also be like our curriculum committee. It could be our grading committee. Um, your your grade teams, which are typically made up of teachers that teach in that grade. What about the students from that grade? Can they be on those committees? Then once you bring them into the literal structure, they are equal members of this committee, clarify the decision-making processes for each type of decision that that group will make. So for decisions that will be made collaboratively, there's not all of your decisions that are going to be made by the whole group getting feedback from every student who that group represents. So if grade 10 is going to make a decision that impacts all of grade 10, you know, you may decide, hey, we're going to get feedback from all of our students before we make a concrete decision. Uh, we might do a couple feedback loops. So we get their first round of feedback. We put together two proposals. We have them vote on it and we clarify, you know, we're going with the majority vote rules or we're saying, you know, every student has to be able to live with this. This is a massive decision. You know, we're going to uh, do consensus voting. And so anyone who doesn't reach a three out of five they have not reached consensus and we need to do another round of feedback, right? So you have to get really specific on which decisions go out to everyone for a vote or consensus or however you're making the decision and how that decision is decided. Now, there are some that are going to be really minor. So for example, it might be 
we are taking a field trip and we know that the students want to go. We've already had the discussions about wanting to go. Now we just have to like literally pick the date. And so we're going to look at the school calendar as that grade team level community. And we're going to just choose the date and, you know, hope it works for most kids because it can't work for every kid probably, right? Or something like that. That might be actually something that you do throw back to the students, but you want to be specific, which types of decisions are things that are going to be made on the committee and which types of the decisions go to everyone. And what does that feedback loop look like? So that's something that you want to, to think about. When you're talking about a school leadership, an example might be um, that options for a major overhaul of a school policy are going to be first created by the leadership team, then shared with grade team committees, then the grade team committees might share with all of the students and staff in that grade, gather a bunch of feedback, share that data back with the leadership team, and then the leadership team does maybe another round of that feedback loop. So they share, here's like a draft final plan, let's get approval via consensus voting. If we don't have consensus, then you know we're gonna move forward. Now, um, move forward, sorry, with the next loop. Now that probably, that type of decision that does that level of detail and rounds of feedback is probably gonna be something that affects every student in a pretty monumental way. So it might be like, we're shifting the grading policy or we're shifting some sort of thing that, that every single student is going to be affected by. So again, you just wanna lay those out. There are other episodes where I've done a lot of deep dives on what this looks like, uh, the different things to consider, the challenges with doing something like this, especially if right now you're very uh, a top-down organization, and also different school and district level kind of examples of what this looks like or could look like at the various tiers, like elementary, uh, middle, high school, district level. So I'll link to that in the blog post for today. Now at the class level, this could look like teachers just identifying regular opportunities to gather feedback from their students, asking really simple things. It does not have to be a very long list of questions you ask, and you can ask the questions in a variety of formats. This could be a, a Google form. This could be a whole class discussion that takes up a full class period or, or time. Um, ask things like, what is working for you as an individual? What is not working? And what ideas do you have for me for change? Right, it puts you as the teacher in a leadership position um, that the students need to acknowledge right, that, that you are in that leadership position and you ultimately have the final say, but you are willing to learn from them and that they have a role in really co-creating what happens next. So if you have a teacher who's really excited to kind of do this work, this is probably gonna be an easy lift. Um, it's just a matter of like figuring out where this kind of fits in with like all the curriculum. If you have a teacher who's resistant to doing this, we might take some smaller steps uh, like it might be at the end of each unit versus at the end of each week or the end of each day, right? Um, where the, the teacher really has an opportunity and they might want to make some more specific questions. Like I want feedback on this specific part because they, maybe they're only open to change in that specific part, right? Like the mechanism for like which protocol we use for discussion or whatever, but I don't want to change the class content or whatever, right? So, so there can be this gradual process where you ask about a specific thing get feedback. And then because the students co-created it, it likely will go better next time. And then there's an opening kind of, an, of a willingness to do more co-creation and more feedback from students about a wider range of things. I do recommend that this data and this kind of um, invitation for feedback is grounded in specific experiences that students have had in class or with your classwork. So I think that's something to just be mindful of that we are grounding it in like, you didn't like this. Okay. Why? So maybe you felt really stressed out 
when I made that deadline and I said, there's no uh, late work accepted, right? And you had this family thing and you were stressed about it. And so you just felt like there was no flexibility and then you just didn't do the assignment because you're overwhelmed, right? Like that's a specific experience a student has. They can share that. And then there's context, right? Because if that same student says, well, you should never have deadlines ever, like then it's very um, decontextualized and it's harder for the teacher, one, to accept that feedback and two, to fully, for the teacher to fully understand it. And three, for the teacher to understand it and then have the student see that understanding and be more likely to share in the future. So I think there's all sorts of pieces there. I also just noted quickly the, you know, considering a range of modalities for how students share the information. I do think that's important. It can be written, it can be verbal in a, in a discussion, but it also could be like, share with me, um, you know, photo voices, one of the things in the student voice world for research that's getting really popular or drawing, especially with young children, right? Draw me a picture of your experience in this class and then then explain it to me, maybe in a one-on-one -on -one conference or in a circle where you, you hold it up and you kind of share. Um, take pictures if you're not really an artist or like I am not artistic at all. So I would be like, yes, I could take a picture, but I don't want to make a drawing. That feels like just totally not my jam. So do some photo voice, right? Take some pictures that are maybe artsy or maybe just like literal that describe to me kind of your experience in this class. And you can, again, walk me through them or add a caption to each picture and submit it via email, whatever. Now at the peer group level, this is, uh, again, teacher-teacher peer group or student-student peer group. I'm I'm putting on like a heavy student hat here because I'm thinking, you know, we talk a lot about these processes with adults. So what does it look like for students to kind of co-create this culture themselves with just a little bit of support from, from maybe the teacher? One of the first things I think is to co-create group working agreements. And so you can see, again, those parallels to adults. We want to know how to work together. So anytime there's group work on a project, for example, let's talk about how we do that, right? I think you can, again, do this in different spaces like sports teams or other sort of after-school clubs, but like, how do we want to work with one another? How do we want to disagree with one another? What are the phrases that we want to use? We don't want to use all that stuff. Then determine, again, how decisions will be made. So in our group project, when we make a big decision about the project, are we going to have consensus or is the majority going to win, right? And we think about all the interpersonal dynamics that happen in student groups and what often can like derail the project. My vote would often be consensus because we don't want kind of like a, a peer group who's like really good friends with one another get paired up or grouped up with another student who's not part of that intimate peer group. And then that person just gets outvoted, right? We want everyone to feel like they have a good sense of voice. Um, and then I would also specify at least one time point, particularly with longer projects, but even honestly, if it's a group project that lasts like a class period or something, at least one time during that class period or during the course of the project, at least one, you're going to check in with every member about how the group is functioning. Do so you know how we often like assign roles to students? And sometimes they're arbitrary. Like, you know, we have like the timekeeper and the secretary and the presenter. And like often those are really helpful roles. Sometimes they are more or less helpful depending on the project or whatever. I really feel that if nothing else, we have a person who does this check-in, like they could be like the equity checker or something. I don't know, the experiential person. You're better at names than I am probably. But I'm thinking about, you know, how do we check in and ask each individual member how they are feeling and how the group is functioning and how it's best serving them or not serving them, right? And how it might change. 
Now, step three, once you've done step two and you really have those power sharing structures and processes in place where we have the decision processes clarified, we have equity of voice, then regularly practice inquiry cycles. So again, we want to ground this in a search for the positive. Where are things going well? We want to ground it in experiential data, centering people and perspectives that historically or currently have not been or are not being served by how we do things right now, right? So at a school level, those students or the family members or even the staff who are not being heard, they're not being served, they're unhappy, they're not being successful, um, they don't have the academic achievement, they're not passing classes, whatever it is, um, their attendance is low, like something is not working, let's hear from them first. And then if there's several groups, for example, uh, let's say that in a high school with grades 9 through 12, grades um, you know, 9, 10, and 12 are struggling, but grade 11 is not struggling with a common challenge, maybe attendance. So what's happening in grade 11 that is making students attend more than grades 9, 10, and 12, right? Or maybe out of all of the ninth grade classes, one teacher's class is excelling in attendance, like really high attendance and others are not. So like what's happening in that class and having kind of an inquiry mindset, a question where we go collect that experiential data of that positive deviant of that teacher or that class or that community where things are going well, what do we learn from them and how do we really transfer that learning to the other spaces and communities? Now, step four is kind of an offshoot of step three. When we gather that experiential data, we want to make sure we systematize the data collection and we want to make sure we have ongoing processes that we can just repeat because we want to consistently, constantly collect that data. We don't want to do it just once in a while around a big project. We want a constant influx of what is happening for students in our educational community. We want that information. So identify who the data is collected from, again, centering students and individuals in the community that are not being served, in which format. So again, are we doing photo voice, drawings, a Google form, an opportunity for discussion, like a focus group, how often we're collecting this and by whom. So who is responsible for gathering that information? If we want student data, can we train and ideally pay students to be trained, pay them in you know money or by class credit or something as like a researcher, independent research study or something course, you know, whatever it is. But can we have students be the ones interviewing and collecting and gathering data from other students because they will be better received? Like try to figure all those pieces out. I highly recommend you consult Jamila Dugan and Shane Safir's book, Street Data. There are some excellent ideas for implementation. And actually this month, February, 2024, I reviewed several of these ideas on my YouTube channel in five minute video spurts. So if you want some concrete ideas for like, what might this look like in practice, feel free to check those out, check that book out. It is amazing. And then finally, step five, I really encourage for the sustainability of the project, for the justice centeredness of all of your leadership, all of your you know community endeavors, I highly recommend that you all individually and collectively practice building skills of critical discourse. So we have to be able to tackle the tough stuff. So this includes identifying, probably first and foremost, right? identifying when and for which topics 
the group, and this could be any group, this could be like your leadership committee, this could be a classroom, um, avoids talking about or deflects responsibility for, for particular topics. So when this topic comes up, we say, oh, well, we can't do anything about that because that's so-and-so's like the family's the right issue. Or, um, you know, we, we make a joke when this topic is brought up because we're actually really uncomfortable talking about it or everyone's eyes kind of like look down at their lap when this topic comes up, right? Like we want to first identify where are we kind of like crumbling and falling apart and not actually digging in. Also, um, one iCults has this fantastic kind of discourse quadrant, which Dr. Sheree Bridges Patrick and I have adapted for uh, adaptive leadership chapter we we co-authored. And, and we talk about these four types of discourse, particularly around racial discourse, where we have the polarizing dimension, right? We're on like separate teams and we're kind of entrenched in our positions. Um, we have the silencing and denying, which is kind of that avoidance, right? We're not going to talk about this. We have the intellectualizing type of discourse where we're just kind of in our heads, but not our hearts. And then we have what we ideally want, which is generative mobilizing discourse. And so the this last one is really the ideal form of discourse. It's very helpful to diagnose. You'll, you'll notice there's a lot of diagnosis here, right? We diagnose what we're avoiding talking about. We diagnose the type of discourse being discussed. A lot of critical discourse is difficult. It's difficult to build that culture of learning and being having that critical discourse as a venue for learning and centering marginalized perspectives and experiences, right? And all the things that we need. So we first have to diagnose where we're going wrong. And then we have to try to build our skills through practice and through redirection, getting back on track when we try to avoid that or deflect responsibility, right? Recognizing when we're intellectualizing and not using our hearts, those kinds of things to get on the generative mobilizing discourse track. So that is an ongoing process and that's what makes it truly sustainable. Yes, we have these systems of kind of how we share decision-making power and leadership. And yes, we regularly practice inquiry and we collect data, but we have to continue the practice every day of building skills of critical discourse because we can do all of those other things. And when it comes to the actual discussion, if we can't say out loud our thoughts around making the hard decisions, around analyzing the challenging data, around digging into adaptive challenges, long-standing problems, right? White supremacy, all of the things that are gonna come up and be hard, then we can't actually move the needle forward. We can't actually make change and lead change and be a, a true culture of learning for justice. So to wrap this up, no one can know it all. And so if you're feeling that burden of like, I can't do this thing because like, I just don't have all the answers yet or I need to learn more before I act. Yes, I think we do need to learn more but not just as individuals, we need to create the community to learn together collectively, right? The best thing we can do is to surround ourselves with brilliant people with different diverse experiences who can help you as an individual leader and also the community as a collective learn and grow. And then once you've established this culture, you fuel it, you foster it, you grow it. And that's going to help address a wide range of challenges, like most hard things that you have to tackle are going to be served by this community that you've built. So in conclusion, I'm going to help you with uh, establishing a little culture of learning in your community. I'm gonna share my leadership bundle with you where I've just kind of bundled my most popular resources around this idea of shared adaptive leadership. So this is going to include my Diagnosing Adaptive Challenges mini workbook, a series of culture building agendas you can use for staff meetings, and also my learning walk protocol that ideally involves 
a mix of stakeholders, including students to do this work. You can grab that at today's blog post, lindsaybedlions.com slash blog slash 152. If you like this episode, I bet you'll be just as jazzed as I am about my coaching program for increasing student-led discussions in your school. Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan talk about a pedagogy of student voice in their book, Street Data. They say students should be talking for 75% of class time. Do students in your school talk for 75% of each class period? I would love for you to walk into any classroom in your community and see this in action. If you're smiling to yourself as you listen right now, grab 20 minutes on my calendar to brainstorm how I can help you make this big dream a reality. I'll help you build a comprehensive plan from full day trainings and discussion protocols like Circle and Socratic Seminar to follow up classroom visits where I can plan, witness, and debrief discussion-based lessons with your teachers. Sign up for a nerdy, no strings attached brainstorm call at lindsaybethlyons.com slash contact. Until next time, leaders, think big, act brave, and be your best self. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network, Better Today, Better Tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode.